Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by guest John Bertrand, CEO of Digital Diagnostics, to talk about autonomous diagnostics. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. John, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to digital diagnostics? Absolutely. Uh, well, I guess I started in healthcare in 2006. At undergrad, I went to work for an EMR company called Epic, which at the time was much smaller than it is today. And over about 12 and a half years, I worked in a variety of product, business, corporate development roles there uh, as that company became the market dominant player that it is today, which is a great place to start your career in healthcare because EMRs are kind of the center of the universe of, of data and really was an eye-opening and educational experience. After that, I moved to the West Coast and went to work at a venture capital firm for a few years that was really focused on innovative technology across a variety of industries, uh, healthcare obviously being the, the focus for me. And along the way, I met this company, Digital Diagnostics, uh, joined uh, the founder on the board. We were talking a bunch about where AI was going and how to build the right type of company from an ethics, uh, from a mission perspective. and really fell in love with what Michael, Dr. Abramoff was building and joined the CEO uh, coming up on three years ago. So what does digital diagnostics do and why is this important for improving healthcare? We're the first ever to receive FDA clearance for a fully autonomous algorithm. What that means is that it's actually data into the computer and full diagnostic report out. There's no doctor in the loop, no human uh, overseeing individual diagnosis. Uh, outputs, it's truly autonomous. You do not need to gate access to these tests with a physician. Our first use case is diabetic retinopathy. This is the leading cause of blindness around the world, and it is a care gap across most, if not all, of the value-based care programs in the U.S. And frankly, it's one of, if not the hardest, care gap to close. CMS's own data puts it at about 15% closure rate nationally. So there's a ton of patients we're not getting to with this eye-saving test. We just do not have access to a specialist to get this done. And that's where I, again, really got excited about this business is seeing the potential to really expand access and equity to care to patients, regardless of where they live or what their background is. So the word autonomous in there, that, that definitely triggers AI and machine learning for me. Um, so what role does machine learning play in your technology? Uh, it's a huge part of how the algorithm functions. So yes, uh, autonomous, again, that goes back to there's no human in the loop as compared to other AI. There's always in those other examples, some doctor or operator double checking the work or signing off on it. This is ML that's actually processing along with computer vision, neural networks, you know, the whole gamut of technologies here around the, the AI space to create that diagnostic output without the human being in the loop. So is the main function of it um, to to take an image as input and to predict an output, or are there multiple steps within that pipeline that machine learning plays a role? So we, we ingest an image. It's called a fundus image. It's a type of imaging modality that's been around for over 100 years and has been digitized in the last couple of decades. And we take that standard of care image. What I mean by that is it's what specialists are using today in their office if you were to go see a human being for this test. We take that image, it comes through our, our system and the, the computer vision, machine learning componentry, as well as the neural networks, look at the image for biomarkers. 
And what's unique about our technology is that we look for and can explain what biomarkers we're finding on the image. Biomarkers are what physicians use to determine if there's disease present or not. And we essentially calculate out based off of the mix of biomarkers that we're seeing, uh, whether or not we've reached a threshold where you call the disease positive. So it really honestly acts just like a physician's brain does in evaluating these types of images. We're just using the technology to produce the diagnostic output rather than human cognition. So your algorithms are based off of the biomarkers, the features that um, experts are already looking at. How do your developers collaborate with the domain experts, with, with the doctors to understand how they should implement those algorithms to, to replicate what the doctors want to see as an output? Uh, well, some of that goes goes back to how we choose what we build. So we look for diagnostics where there's an established understanding of what the disease is, and there's a gold standard as to how to measure that. It's actually quite interesting as you get into diagnostics, you start realizing there's quite a few diseases that your provider will diagnose you on where there's not a rubric or, or a baseline set as to when is this disease there or not. It's more of a judgment call uh, because, again, they just haven't gotten to that point in that area of medicine, the benchmark it. So we'll naturally start with an area where positive, negative is a, is a very binary decision that is almost mathematically derived from. With the example of diabetic retinopathy, behind the scenes, you know, your doctor's actually thinking through how do the biomarkers they detect map back to what's called an EDTRS scale. And based on the different biomarkers they see, they can essentially grade it out uh, from one to 50, 35 being the tipping point where disease is present. So the algorithm is essentially mimicking that thought process as I described. Uh, we really, when we build our pipeline out for new products, follow that kind of same pattern. We want there to be that well understood consensus across the clinical community that we know what the disease is defined by. Otherwise, you're left with scenarios where you're like, what's your benchmark? What is what is good look like? What's the gold standard? And that's where you see lots of people publishing studies that say, oh, this algorithm's better than a doctor identifying disease. Well, if the doctors don't even agree at, as to what disease is, you're not really saying a whole lot with statements or studies like that. So again, it goes back to picking the right types of, of disease states uh, to make sure that that gold standard already exists. Uh, that's kind of how we control for quite a bit of that when we're building product. Are there other sources of variability in your data? Things like the images themselves from one scanner to the next, depending on who's operating the scanner, different variations like that that cause challenges with your algorithms? I don't say challenges, but there are things you have to think about when you're solving the problem and our engineering team does a great job on. So there's a, a few things. One is you have to be aware of the sensor technology or the hardware that's capturing the image and where there might be variability. One great example is you know field of view. So there's 40 degree field of view, 60, uh, and a range in between cameras in terms of what they capture. We have a bunch of proprietary and patented technology that helps us kind of process the images to essentially normalize to make sure before it hits the algorithm, we're essentially looking at like for like images. But that was a really interesting problem to solve, right? How do you take images that have different coverage of the retina, but make sure that you piece them together in a way that the uh, the processing part of the system is getting a consistent image that they're looking at every single time so that the algorithm remains consistent 
and we don't have to have different algorithms per you know vendor that we're interacting with. So that's that's one area of variability. And you'll see operator skill variability in capturing the images. And again, we have quite a bit of patented technology around how to using assistive AI guide the operator to capture the image properly so that you have a high enough quality image that the AI can produce a result that uh, we, we would be excited to say have our own grandmother uh, receive treatment under. So that's been something that we figured out early days. If you actually look at others, like say Google, for example, that have tried to build algorithms in, in the lab and then move them into workflow, they've struggled quite a bit with that operator variability. So we're pretty proud of the fact we've been able to figure that out and have been the first to do that, uh, that kind of assistive feedback for the provider. But I mean, if you step back even further, there's variability in humans too, we have to think about. And that starts you know, from the inception of the, the uh, algorithm build. And that goes back to the fact that from, um, from a biology perspective, especially when we're talking about retinal imaging, you know, your skin pigmentation has an impact on what the image looks like, right? So essentially your, your race can impact what we're looking at. And we, from the beginning of building our algorithms, always start with, you know, bioethics here. We want every single patient, regardless of their background, to receive consistent quality of diagnostic output. What that means is that we actually have to build our training data sets, as well as our clinical validation studies and trials to take into account a diverse population set. And one of the things that was intuitive to our founder, Dr. Abramoff, that uh, maybe not so much to a tech person is, you have to kind of start your build from the beginning with, the, with that in mind. You have to start that ethical framework to begin with on how you're setting up the training data, how you will design your study. You can't build the algorithm and then go, okay, now let's go double check that against uh, a diverse population set. That's just setting you up for, for quite a bit of issues here working through the problem. So again, there's human variability, operator variability, hardware variability. Some are easier to solve for than others. You know, hardware being something we take care of in the pre-processing, operator being more challenging. Lots of folks have difficulties with that, but we're pretty proud of the progress we've made there. But it really all starts with an ethical framework at the beginning with training data, if you even want to get to those other two problems. Yeah, that, that's, that's very important to understand that process. You have to understand your data, how it's collected and the, the patients that you're collecting it based on in order to understand those variations and from that be able to figure out how to tackle them as your team has done. One, one thing you brought up there with the distribution of different patients is bias, and that's a large concern with AI models right now. If your training set is underrepresenting part of the population, your model can end up biased. Is this the, the main way that bias can manifest in medical data or are there other ways that can come up? I mean, there's, you see it in a variety of ways. One would be obviously your training data having a massive impact on, on what your bias is going to be across a large population set. I would also say that continuous learning versus locked algorithms is another key factor, which it plays a little off the data, but I do think it's worth, it's, it's nuanced enough and it's difference to be worth mentioning. You know, lots of people say, hey, look, we're going to we're going to do an open algorithm. It's going to continuously learn as it goes. But what you see is that it's actually biased by the most recent data that's fed through it. So if you have an international footprint across multiple continents, there is a period of, of the night here in America where 
in say the Middle East or Europe, we're pumping a bunch of data through because their clinics are live and up and running. Would you really want that algorithm to adjust to the most recent data it's seeing, thinking it's attempting to become more accurate when in fact, it's really more optimizing for the ethnicity of the folks in that particular region. The sun rises on the east coast of the United States, everybody else further east goes to bed. Now the algorithm has been indexed towards another group from a ethnicity perspective that, that's no longer representative of where the testing is being done as the sun rises in New York. So you, you really want to watch the continuous learning uh, approach. It sounds great from a tech perspective, but I think the practicality of how how medicine works just means that that's not that's not an intelligent approach. That'll be one way that you've got bias, or you you want to essentially think through your approach so that that you can ensure that you don't have it. I would say uh, there's two other factors to keep in in mind. Um, one is related to um, how you actually validate and ex and expose things. What I mean by that uh, is in the study process, you know, look, our, our de novo clinical trial and the study data is, is fully exposed. You can go pull that down publicly. You can read about uh, the spread over various eth ethnicities, how the output looked across them. It's fully public and transparent. You can see that. Uh, and we're very proud of doing it that way. There are others out there that have built algorithms where you don't even know how it performed across different patient ethnicities. So. I don't think that's necessarily like saying, hey, that introduces the bias, but I think you need to think through when you're building a product and you're, you're gonna go validate it, how do we ensure that we create confidence with regulators, with providers and with patients that we've actually thought through this and can demonstrate and point to results that show we do not have bias uh, within, within the algorithm. So I think that's another big component, not necessarily maybe introducing bias, but just making sure it's, it's fully transparent and then the last thing would be kind of an extension on the, the last comment is we are big on explainable outputs, meaning for any diagnostic output we have, we can literally break down for you with the computer saw, why it graded out what it did and why it gave you the results it did. It's called, it's explainable, right? Versus a black box where it's just data in and output out. And you don't really know why the GPU arrived at that, that conclusion. We can actually pull up and show you what the system detected from a biomarker perspective, why we calculated the level of disease that we did. And that also helps you uh, continuously monitor the efficacy, which is something we're always doing, which is just randomly sam sampling uh, live production diagnostic outputs to making sure our production output uh, is consistent with what we saw in, in the trial data. And then of course, that we can walk through how it got where, it's, where it got from a results perspective you know, a la the explainability approach. So in that case, how do you think about the balance between model accuracy and explainability? It's not necessarily that one is more important than the other. I think they, they both are important, And but how does that balance um, play out for you and your team? Well, I don't think you need to compromise on one to get the other. I mean, your, your algorithm should be explainable. So people trust the technology, understand how it works. Uh, to me, that's just like, that's just what you got to do. And also explainability helps you drive better accuracy and that you understand why you're getting the result that you're getting. With the black box approach, if you're not getting high enough accuracy, the idea is let's just slam more data through it and sharpshoot till we get an accuracy that feels good in the particular test that we set up for ourselves. It's more of a correlation than a causal understanding of you know what you're changing versus what the 
outcome looks like. So I, we don't believe there should be a trade-off or you need to make a trade-off to do that. I'll say it, it does make build more complicated. It does mean uh, more cycle time from a dev perspective, but it's the right thing to do. And it's why you see AI the right way as our tagline here for the business is we just feel there's an ethical uh, way to do this to make sure you don't have bias in your output. And it's just really important that you're just kind of grounded in that from a, from a first principles perspective as a company. Is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI powered startups? I think the, there's a few things. One would be, you really want to work within the healthcare system when you're building these types of businesses. That was a conscious choice. Our founder, Dr. Abramoff made years ago that, that I'm lucky to inherit that good decision that he made. What I mean by this is rather than building AI and saying, we're just going to build the way we think is right. We're just going to go sell it. I don't care if the FDA agrees or not. I don't care if AMA is behind us. Kind of like the Uber approach where we're just going to kind of disrupt, disrupt at all costs. I think you really need to, with this type of technology, work with those bodies that help govern healthcare, the FDA, AMA, CMS, and really work through the process with them. And in doing that, you're going to kind of naturally be conforming to tried and true ways that technology has been validated as safe, uh, effective, and without bias uh, in healthcare. So that, that would be number one, right? You, you want to think about how do we kind of do this in a way that everybody else can get comfortable with this from a key stakeholder perspective. It takes longer to do it that way. However, I think it, it really helps your product from an adoption perspective in the early days, because if those groups are behind you and they have their own derived reasons for why they feel it's safe, effective, without bias, you're going to get much better adoption than if you just build something on your own and are out there, you know, making your own claims from a safety, efficacy and uh, absence of bias perspective. So that would really be number one. Um, I think two would be, you know, it really is a mission-driven endeavor in my mind when you're when you're building healthcare innovation. And I would I would say you should really think about grounding your company in a, a very meaningful mission. You know, when you step back for a second, tech's hard to build, the development cycles are long, the regulatory approval process is challenging, and that's before you even get to the hard part of working it into workflow. If you're going to chart that course and really carry through to fruition your vision of building an algorithm that impacts patient lives, I think you really need to center the culture of the business around a commonly shared vision uh, for the mission of what you're trying to do. So that way, when when it gets tough, and it will, you as an organization have that shared purpose, the mission that you're driving towards, and it, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of gut out those scenarios that uh, may be challenging from time to time and come up along the way. Where do you see the impact of digital diagnostics in three to five years? Three to five years, I, I would imagine that we're doing a sizable amount of the diabetic retinopathy testing in the US you know, using our algorithm. We're at a point where adoption's really picking up quite a bit. You know, they call it the hockey stick growth moment, you know, for those that are familiar with startups. And, you know, we're kind of on that trajectory uh, where you're kind of holding on, trying to keep up with all the demand and you know, I can imagine us being commonplace in most clinical practices uh, for a variety of a variety of uh, different applications. And the other piece I would say where we'll be in three to five years, I would imagine at that point we're on our fourth or fifth algorithm that's been released. 
not just in eye care, but in dermatology and other specialties. And will be, you know, I will be at that point probably viewed as one of the premier, not the premier autonomous AI companies in healthcare, uh, just from the fact that we've paved the path to date from clearing and getting into the clinical workflow. Uh, we're also easily one of the widely, most widely adopted algorithms in the clinical diagnostic space. But in another three to five years, that, that development rinse repeat will really be out there in full force for all to see. And, and that's, that's roughly where I think we'll be in the three to five years, kind of ubiquitous, doing most of the diabetic retinopathy testing with uh, quite a large and growing compendium of algorithms for other use cases. That's great to hear. John, this has been great. Your team is doing some really interesting work with diagnostics and responsible AI. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? At digitaldiagnostics.com. Uh, we are hiring. So if you are an aspiring AI builder or doing it today, or you just want to get involved in this interesting space, check out our variety of open positions uh, across a bunch of technical, non-technical roles. Um, please apply, especially if you're working on something outside of the eye care space. We're always expanding specialty coverage. And uh, if you're interested in building AI, I think we're, we're a great place to do that. Perfect. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me on, Heather. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.